Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're learning about the definition of life. What's the Jewish definition of life? What is the definition of holiness? He says the definition of holiness is anything is totally nullified, is egoless, and is not separate or independent from Hashem. It's called Kodesh, holy, the higher level of holiness, Kodesh HaElyon. And this is something that's really inexplicable because everything that exists wants to sustain its existence, enhance its existence, amplify its existence. Why would someone be ready to martyr himself, to martyr his life, to give up his life? It's inexplicable. It's not logical. It's not rational. You'd be losing your existence. You'd be losing your self, your independence. It's not like you're gaining. You're losing the ultimate sacrifice is called not Mesirat Haguf, giving up your body. There are many people who are ready to give up their body. It's giving up your soul. Giving up something that matters to you. Like there was a famous story of Rabbi Baruch Mezhubuz, the grandchild of the Vashemta. It was a chassid who came to him and before Shabbos and he left everything he had he left everything, you know, Shabbos, and he couldn't protect it, and he just came to the, to the Rebbe for Shabbos. And all Shabbos, the Rebbe was insulting him in public, in front of all the Hasidim, embarrassed him, insulted him. And it was so uncomfortable. Everyone was so uncomfortable. I mean, the Rebbe was acting so insulting, this Jew, his own Hasid, and that insult to injury. You know, he, he says, what a shlom mazl, how could you do this? You leave all your... All your, your all this it doesn't even the money doesn't even belong to you. You borrowed money. To, you bought all this merchandise. How could you behave this way? And he kept on insulting him throughout Shabbos. Later on, when he came to see retrieve, maybe maybe he can retrieve the barrels. Maybe everything else was stolen. Maybe there's a remnant he can salvage and sell. He realized that miraculously. Everything he had was protected. Nobody touched it. No one was able to touch it. It was all intact. And the Rebbe's uh, relative who was there says, How could, why are you insulting this Jew? And he said that, that he was about to suffer a terrible loss, to become totally impoverished. And by him insulting him, he actually saved him. He saved his financial well-being because of all the pain and aggravation that he suffered on the Rebbe's hand, that he was insulting him and humiliating him in public, and he shamed him, that was, that was a substitute that he was able to maintain his wealth. His wealth was intact. So he says, yeah, but if you embarrass a Jew, embarrass a Jew in public, you have no share in the world to come. So he says, so I won't have a share in the world to come. But as long as I save this Jew's life, that's called self-sacrifice. It's not the Rebbe is sacrificing because he's gaining something. He's making a calculation. I'm going to learn. I'm going to gain something. He's really giving up his soul without asking anything in return. Just for the sake of, 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 of this, just for the Jew's sake. That's true sacrifice. So 
So it's inexplicable. Why would a person do this? It makes no sense. Look out for yourself. Is this going to help me? Is it going to benefit me? Is it going to make me a better person? You know, but if it's all about me becoming a better person, I would never lose my temper. I would never lose my temper. You won't catch Gandhi sitting and insulting a person because it's good for that person. It's just not his nature. The kindest, gentlest person. So ultimately, you're looking out for yourself. What's good for me? True self-sacrifice is forget about yourself. Not about me. What can I do to help the other person? Even if in the process, I'm giving up my soul, giving up my share in the world to come. So this self-sacrifice is inexplicable. This is what we call holy. The Hebrew word for holy, kodesh, is the same word as kiddushin, as marriage. Kiddushin is a, is a marriage, a relationship between the Jew and Hashem. The focus in marriage is really not about me. It's really about my spouse. And yet, ironically, paradoxically, it's only in the relationship that you really, you really discover yourself. In the relationship, your being has real meaning because it's mutual each one values the other so it's in this moment of selflessness when you're really forgetting about yourself and really focusing on the other person and a relationship a kiddushin a marriage is the only thing in the world which is really an end in itself everything else in this world is really a marketplace transaction. It's a business deal. Everything is a deal. What do I get? What do I give? What do I get in return? It's an exchange. You give me what I want, I give you what you want. It's a business deal. There's one thing that's really holy. And that's marriage. It's not a business deal. It's not a business transaction. It's an end in itself. It's not the, what am I looking for in exchange? That's what defines it. That's why this is one place in your life that's sacred, that's holy. That's why you feel at home. It's not about the house, the mansion. You can have a mansion where you don't feel at home. We have huge houses where we don't feel at home. It's about a home, a place where you feel at home. A place where there's unconditional love, a place which is sacred this trust where you just celebrate each other it's being together and celebrate each other and that is the end in itself it's not okay so what are we doing today <laughs> it's the end in itself just being together that is the end this is pure this is holy marriage reminds us that we are we have souls that we're not just functionaries in this world we're not just practical Cogs in the machine that produce, productive, receive something in return, things that we like, but that we are ends in itself. We're not just means to an end. We are an end in itself. So marriage reminds us, touches that divine place within us. And it's in that, only in marriage that your, really, your real being really emerges. <coughs> 
You're not just grabbing and taking from the other. You're giving to the other and you're allowing the other to give something back in return. Judaism is about a relationship. It's a marriage. Yes, we're totally nullified before Hashem. We love Hashem. It's an end in itself. We just want to be, do it because we want to be close to Hashem. For its own sake. Without asking anything in return. But we're, not, we're giving to Hashem. And Hashem is allowing us to give something. And Hashem receives it. And it gives Hashem tremendous pleasure. And Hashem gives us in return. So it's, it's a mutual relationship. It's a real connection. It's a real relationship. So ironically, paradoxically, when you're egoless, when you forget about your ego, when you park your ego outside, and you have the sanctity of the home, you have sacredness, you have a marriage, kiddush, you have a relationship, it's there that you discover your true being. It's there that your true being becomes grounded. That you become real. In Judaism, there's no nihilism. You don't become into a shmata. Oh, bittel doesn't mean I'm nothing. I'm insignificant. I am nothing. I am nobody. That's not on the contrary. That's when you become significant. When you have bittel, when there's no ego. And it's not about ego. And it's not about I. And it's a marriage. And it's an end in itself. And you give it without asking anything in return. It's just the being in the presence. That's when you truly come into being that's when your being really becomes meaningful and your being really matters and everything about you matters every thought every speech every action so it's not about worthlessness it's on the contrary the person who's most egotistical really has a deep sense of worthlessness and the greater sense of worthlessness the more you have to cover it up with a larger ego arrogance is just a cover up for really a sense of worthlessness. But the person who's egoless and holiness, it's not about ego. It's about Hashem. You're focused on Hashem. That's when, that's when you really have a sense of real worth. That's when you really discover your real true sense of worth. Because you have, there's a marriage, there's a relationship. I can do something for Hashem. It's real. Hashem needs me. Hashem doesn't use us. Hashem needs us. He needs us to willingly have a relationship with him, to enter into this relationship, to willingly marry, to willingly connect with him, to do it without freedom of choice. So that's when we actually discover a genuine sense of worth, self-worth. He says the definition of holiness, anything that's connected to holiness, this comes from the word marriage, kiddushin, relationship. It's not about ego. Marriage is not about ego. She's not a trophy and he's not a... It's not they use each other and then they spit each other out. When you're ego-centered and you totally focus on yourself, Yourself becomes ever more elusive. You can't discover, you can't find yourself. You know, the, we're the most arrogant generation in human history, and uh, people are, are searching for that self. 
in itself is ever more elusive. So the definition of holiness is, is egolessness. And it's inexplicable. It's the power that every Jew has in their soul. It's called the koyach ha-chachma, the power of chachma. Chachma comes from two words. Koyach ma. What is it? It's inexplicable. I don't know what it is. It's coming from a place that transcends logic, rational, ego, I. And that's the exact opposite of the other side, of the shell. The natural soul, the impulsive soul, the egotistical soul, which all humans have, which ultimately everything that we do, ultimate motivation is ego, I. What can God do for me today? How will a higher level of conscience serve me? So it's about grabbing, it's about taking. Everything in life becomes have, have, grab, take, feed me, stuff me. So it's all about I, me, myself, and I. And ultimately, that's called death. That's why they're called dead. Even when they're alive, a rush, even when he's alive, he's called dead. And that's why everything becomes very nihilistic. It's not about relationships. People use each other. Abuse each other. I take, I grab. It's not about giving. That's why certain relationships the Torah prohibits. Because they're the antithesis of godliness. Because the whole relationship is really about taking and grabbing. I'm using the other person. The other person doesn't get, doesn't get anything. He's just, he's just a toy. He's just there for me to be used for my own pleasure. That's why the homosexual act is absolutely prohibited in the Torah. Because that whole act is the antithesis of holiness. It's all about using the other person. It's not a two-way street. It's not like you give and the other person receives and simultaneously you're both giving and you're both receiving at the same time. And you're both enhancing each other's. You're both strengthening each other, enhancing each other. It's about each one using the one using and the other one being abused and in some nihilistic way enjoying it, being abused. And it's not just that act. It's when sexuality in general just becomes reduced to eroticism and pleasure per se, disconnected from any holiness, from any sanctity, from any relationship. Marriage is is about taking care of the other person, being nice to the other person being gentle to the other person, being affectionate to the other person, being a mensch. That's where it all begins. Your mission in life is to be nice to one person. That's your mission in life. Everything else is secondary. Who you married? Fine. This, if you married, you'll marry your, your, your soulmate. You have to have a merit. Why do you deserve to marry your soulmate? Have you checked your impulses? Have you overcome your negativity, your, your nature? You can't expect to live a life and then suddenly, miraculously, you want to find your perfect soulmate. So, you marry the person that you deserve. The person that you... that's on your level. But your mission in life, no matter who you marry, your mission in life is to take care of one person, be nice to one person. 
Everything else is secondary. Being nice, being a mensch, being affectionate, loving, kind. Just being a nice, decent person to them. That's your mission. You know, when you're nice to that person, you'll come to love the most. The Hebrew word for ava, for love, comes from the root word, hava, to give. So in Judaism, marriage is sacred. Because it's really, the focus is not about yourself. The focus is really on the other person. And of course, that would make for a much happier world. And people, people would discover themselves. Because when you remember the basic core principle of life, and usually the basic core principles of life are quite simple. It's not about falling passionately in love and madly in love. That's not, that's not what marriage is all about. It's about the basic fundamental principle that your mission in life is to really take care of one person. Focus. That's your focus. That's your mission. That's your goal. Be nice, kind, gentle, affectionate. Saying the kind thing. You're in the mood. You're not in the mood. That, that's not... That's secondary. <laughs> and if the focus would not be on yourself, if the focus would be on the other person, then you would discover the sacredness and the sanctity and you would discover genuine love. A love where each one enhances the other. Not use each other. Abuse each other. Where sexuality is truly holy and sacred. And then you come alive. You come alive as an individual, as a person. And that's why, right off the bat, the Torah, in the beginning, God creates the world, and what's the first thing the Torah tells us? Adam Chava, get married. Because this is, this is the building block. This is the ABC. This is the atom of creation. This is, if you get that straight, you know, if you want to straighten the world, it's not by hugging a tree. If you want to fix the world, <laughs> it's getting the atom. If, the, if every atom is peaceful and wholesome, the world will fall into place. Master the simple, master your own home and master your own marriage get married and master the marriage and have a healthy, wholesome relationship, the world will fall into place. That's the core. That's the essence. That's where it all begins. So that's holiness. And that's life. And that's why the Jewish people have survived for 3,800 years. It's the secret of our survival. We never, we always remember to start from the basics, the foundation, the core, the underpinning. The simple, the fundamental. And that brings life into the world. It brings life to yourself. And it brings life, eternal life. The Jewish people are the eternal people. But if you're lacking that aspect of chachma, that aspect of holiness, where everything in life is egocentric, and ego-centered, then that, that's a dead end. That just leads to nihilism. And it doesn't last long. On the individual level, on the personal level, and on the global level. What happened to all the mighty empires? Who long forgotten? Footnotes in history. Who cares? Who remembers? Does anyone remember the Bill Gates of 100 years ago? Who cares and who remembers? So 
this is the quality of Kedusha. This is the quality of holiness. This is the key. This is essential to holiness. And we shouldn't confuse religion with holiness. There are many Jews who are very religious. But it has nothing to do with holiness. Because when religion becomes all about, what can I take? What can I grab? What can God do for me today? How much shashir in the world to come am I going to get as a result of my studying Torah and doing mitzvah? Okay, so again, it's another business deal. It's another sale. Okay, I'm grabbing, I'm taking. It's about ego. It's about me. Or the eternal ego. It's not enough. At least when a person dies, the ego comes to an end. Here you're going to carry on forever. It never stops. You're so egotistical, it never ends. <laughs> so this is the antithesis of holiness. The antithesis of Yiddishkeit, the antithesis of what a Jew is all about. When the Torah becomes a thing that fuels your ego and your arrogance, and, and it's all about, you can't stop thinking about yourself. And you can't, you don't, you, have, you don't even have any room to think about Hashem. Who has time to think about Hashem when you're busy worrying about how big your Ganadin is going to be, or how great you are? You know, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, used to learn Chavrus, he used to learn, and they once made a prank. There was a Jew in, in the synagogue who would also stay up at night to learn, and he was the self-delusional. You know, he thought that Elijah the prophet is about to appear to him, there's no one holier than him. One time they decided to make a prank of him. <laughs> they, they went up to the women's section. This is at midnight. And, uh, you know, most old children's women's section was above. Behind the curtain, suddenly he was learning at night when the clock struck midnight. He heard like heavenly voices. I forgot his name, what his name was. Avram, Avram. It's a voice from heaven. The heavens are about to part, and we are, we've accepted you, and we're going to pour on you the holy water. <laughs> and they poured some water in him, and he really thought that, that was. It says in the verse, and they said the verse, I will pour in you holy water. And, and the next morning he was coming, he, called, he came to tell them the great news that, uh, that from heaven they finally accepted. You know, so a person who's obsessed, he's thinking his whole Torah is fueled and obsessed with the eye. How much, what advances am I going to make and what levels am I going to attain and achieve? So, yes, it's in a cloak of Torah and mitzvot, but it's really it's fueled by ego. That's the antithesis of holiness. Holiness is about, it's about egolessness. When the motivation of a Jew to study Torah and do mitzvot is not to gain a share in the world to come, but it's an end in itself. Because I want to connect with Hashem, I want to be close to Hashem. By studying Torah, I'm being intimate with Hashem. That's the end. I'm not thinking about the world to come. That's not what it's about. It's not about reward. It's not about me. It's about a marriage, a relationship. What can I do for my spouse? What can I do to please my spouse? I want to be together. I want to just, that's the end in itself. I'm not looking for anything else. That is the definition of holiness. And that's something that's uniquely Jewish. Because religion, and, and even mysticism, ultimately, could be, Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. It's not something that's inexplicable. It's something that makes sense. It makes sense in, in, 
on a very deep level. A person is open to spirituality, to the soul of the world. As you grow, as your mind expands, as your awareness grows, you become open, you become more aware of deeper realities, <coughs> higher levels of realities, infinite reality. So it's not something that's inexplicable. It's still an extension of myself, an expansion of myself. A higher self, a more meaningful self, a deeper self. But Jewish martyrdom is inexplicable. Because it's truly not about I. It's not about my advancement. It's not about my gain. It's not about me. I'm thinking about Hashem. What can I do for Hashem? As a matter of fact, the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe, he had the exact opposite problem. He was such a mystic that when he prayed, they had to pad his room because he got so lost in ecstasy that he banged his head against the wall. He would start bleeding and he wasn't aware of it. So if it was all about himself, his soul would have long expired, long ago expired in ecstasy. He had to force himself. To force himself, to bring himself down to earth, to be grounded. Because he thought, it's not about me, it's about Hashem. What does Hashem want from me? His inclination was, he was a mystic par excellence. He, he was... He was ready to... His soul was on fire, he was ready to expire. He would roll on the ground, he would forget about himself, he would... He would pray, he would lose himself in ecstasy. But he kept himself grounded because it's not about me. It's about Hashem. What does Hashem want? What does God want? It's not about going to the mountaintop, secluding oneself, becoming a nun or a monk. It's not about going to the mountaintop. That's about me. For the Jew, it's about going, coming down from the mountain, forcing yourself, Tearing yourself away from that ecstasy, from that infinite pleasure, indescribable pleasure, and grounding yourself, and eating the bagel, and engaging in the world, and filling your life, filling your mind, your thought, your speech, your action, your day-to-day life with the holiness and sanctity. Because this is what Hashem wants from me. This is what pleases Hashem. It's not about me. What can I do for Hashem? This is marriage. This is a relationship. A mutual, a two-way relationship, but a genuine relationship. Where you have special worth. You have a genuine, inherent value. Versus the rest of the world, which is ultimately motivated by ego. Deep down, it's really all about a sense of worthlessness. It's really nihilistic, because there's no inherent value or inherent worth. Everything is just a means to an end. Everything is a means to an end. What am I getting? What am I gaining? What am I giving up? What am I gaining in return? It's a business transaction. Spirituality is the ultimate ego trip. So ultimately there's an innate sense that there's no inherent reality. The Jew has an inherent reality. Innate reality. Deep down. A comfort zone. How ironic that the Jew feels the most comfortable in this world. (laughs) Feels the most comfortable in the skin. There's a reality to life. There's a rootedness. There's a sanctity to life. There's a holiness to life in this world. Life is precious. 
unlike all other religions that emphasize the afterlife, the other life, the other world, which, which is rooted in the deep sense ultimate in the nihilism, that life is this inner, innate sense of worthlessness. Because everything is just a means to an end. I don't have that inherent innate worth. The Jew has a very deep sense of comfort, of trust, of positivity, of optimism, of trust, of, that it's good. This world is good. It's, it's a good world. God is good. It's good. How ironic. How paradoxical. The Jewish people of all the nations in the world is the most grounded, is the most rude, feels the most comfortable. Because there's an inherent, innate sense of worth. And the Torah says that in order for the nunju to really gain this sense of worth, there's one path. When the non-Jew will follow the seven Noahide laws, as it was taught by Moses in the Torah at Sinai, as it's taught by the Jewish people, when the non-Jew connects to the Jewish people and is guided by Moses and the Torah of Moses, then the non-Jew also acquires a sense of permanency. It says a righteous Gentile has a share in the world to come. When he connects to something Jewish, not by converting to Jewishness, but by becoming a righteous Gentile and following the seven Noahide laws as it was taught in the Torah of Moses at Sinai, then the non-Jewish soul also becomes rooted in the eternity, becomes grounded, and suddenly acquires, settles down, acquires a sense of, of worth. Torah says when God created the world the world was unsettled until the Jewish people received the Torah when the Jewish people received the Torah the world relaxed because until the Jew receives the Torah until the Jew became a people the world senses that inherently it doesn't really exist it doesn't really have an inherent existence or reality or worth it's just a means to an end when does the world acquire an innate, inherent sense of worth and value. And it becomes part of something that's an end in itself. When it becomes connected to the marriage and the relationship of the Jew and Hashem. When the world becomes part of the marriage of the Jew and God by helping the Jew, by helping the Jew fulfill the 613 mitzvah. How? By fulfilling the seven Noahide laws and settling this world and making this world a moral, ethical, and spiritual place, a godly place, a, a a settled place, a civilized place, which enables the Jew to live in such a setting and to celebrate when the world is at peace and the world is stable and the Jew can celebrate his marriage, his relationship with God, then the entire world assumes and becomes part of that marriage, part of that relationship in a certain sense. They become an indispensable part and they also feel deep down inside that they have a sense of worth. A sense of value. And that's why the righteous Gentiles throughout the ages loved the Jew. The Mark Twains of the world. The, the Tolstoys of the world. The Paul Johnsons of the world versus the anti-Semites of the world. Which could, could include religious people, presidents. Makes no difference. 
when a person is connected, has some godly feeling, some godly sense, then they gravitate to the Jewish people because they know that this is how you plug in, this is how you connect. But when the fuel and the motivation is arrogance and ego, that's the ultimate drive. Is a deep inner sense of worthlessness, of nihilism. And that's why the Torah refers to the wicked as dead. Even when they're alive, they're dead. Yes, make a lot of noise and make a big tumult, but it's transient. It's arbitrary. It's transient. It's superficial. It has no staying power. There's nothing to it. It's a bubble. It's nihilistic. And today we see it openly. Because what kind of lifestyle do they promote? A nihilistic lifestyle. Live for the moment, have fun. Nothing matters. Doesn't, there's no past, there's no future, there's no present. Live for the moment, have fun. And that's what life has become reduced to. It makes me feel good. That's what life has become. What makes me feel good in the moment? That's what life has become reduced, been reduced. That's the ultimate nihilism. It's the ultimate declaration of the worthlessness of life. That life has no meaning. Life has no value. Life has, is, has no worth. To take something so precious and just to treat it as something worthless. And all that matters is it makes me feel it. I want to be true to, supposedly want to be true to myself. This is the ultimate declaration of nihilism, of the meaninglessness, absolute meaninglessness, arbitrariness and meaninglessness of your life. Who's going to remember? Who cares? What difference does it make? Instead of living a holy life, instead of living a life that's grounded and connected, a life that every day has meaning and worth and value, and is sacred, and is holy, and is special. It's special to God. And you're special, and your life is special. And all your actions, and your behavior, and your thought, and speech. The contrast couldn't have been stark. Night and day. Life and death. So this is called, even when they're alive, they're called dead. Because it's, it's ego. While holiness is not about ego, and that's life. Now, this is a general principle in the whole realm of holiness. Holiness, Kedusha, is only that which derives from Chachma, called Kodesh Elyon, supernal holiness. The word Kodesh refers to Chachma, while Kedusha refers to any manifestation of holiness as derived from Chachma. As Chachma represents nullification of self before God, only those matters that manifest this character of Chachma may be said to possess holiness. Those matters in which this characteristic is lacking lack holiness as well. The Alter Rebbe continues speaking of Chachma. Its very existence is nullified in the light of the blessed Ein Sof, which is clothed in it, and it is not a thing apart, as explained earlier. Therefore, this faculty is called Chochmah, which consists of the two words Koach Ma. 
the power of humility and abnegation. The word ma, literally meaning what, denotes immateriality, as one might say when belittling himself, what am I? Thus holiness refers to anything which, like chokhmah, draws down from God and nullifies itself before him. This stands in direct contrast to the Kleeper and Sitra Akhra, from which are derived the souls of the Gentiles, who act only for themselves, saying, Give, give, and as Esau said, Feed me, in order to be independent beings and entities separated from God, as mentioned earlier. That Kleeper is a separate and distinct entity, far removed from God, in direct contrast to Chochmah, whose nature is humility and self-nullification. Therefore, they, those of the realm of Kleeper, are described as dead, for wisdom, Chochmah, gives life. Hence, that which is the opposite of Chochmah lacks life. And it is written, they die without wisdom. That is, death is a direct result of lack of wisdom, Chochmah. Therefore, the nations that receive their life force from Kalipa are considered dead. Today is Gimel Tammuz. Um, it's the yard side of the Rebbe, but... Um, 67 years before that. Previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was sentenced to death by Stalin, Stalinist Russia, and his death sentence was miraculously commuted instead to exile. He was released from prison on the third day of Tammuz and was sent into exile. So this was um, because it was the release of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. And you see, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe's life and the sacrifice in Russia is an illustration of the point that Alter Rebbe is making here. It really gets to the essence of the Jewish soul. What's the definition of holiness? When the communists took over, Russia boasted one of the largest Jewish communities in the world, the most active, vibrant Jewish communities in the world. Overnight, the Stalinists, especially the Jewish Stalinists, the Jewish communists, the Efsexia shut down overnight all Jewish institutions, yeshivot, mikvahs, overnight. And um, many people left, those who could left, but the, if, there was no yeshiva to send your child to. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was the only one who actively sent out his students, his chassidim, to go open underground yeshivot. Uh, Khani's grandfather was one of the people who sacrificed himself and went out to build mikvahs. My father was one of those who learned one of these yeshivot. He didn't grow up in a Lubavitch family. He grew up in an other Hasidim, Skivera family. But the only ones that maintained a yeshiva, a secret underground school, literally, they would have a guard standing at the door making sure the police don't come because if you were caught, you were, you were arrested or sentenced to death. In the 1920s? In, in the 30s, in the 20s. If you were um, started in the 20s, but in the 30s, if you, um, if you sat in prison under Stalin, it was either because you were a moral person, a spiritual person, the criminals were running the show. Uh, especially, they went after the Jewish people, especially those who dared to publicly teach Torah and continue to build now, there were many rabbis in Russia, respected rabbis, great rabbis, who not only did not support this program of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, they actually opposed it. He said, what right do you have? Where does it say in the code of Jewish law that one has to sacrifice his life to teach olive It doesn't say anywhere. 
It says in the Code of Jewish Law, you have to sacrifice your life, not to bow down to an idol. You have to sacrifice your life, not to murder. You have to sacrifice your life, not to commit adultery. Where does it say, any, where does it say in the Torah you have to sacrifice your life to teach olive base to little Jewish children? And if you don't have to sacrifice your life, you're not allowed to sacrifice your life. And so not only didn't they support the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe's program of sending out the young, young Jews, many of them to their death, risking their lives. But he felt it's absolutely prohibited. Sounds like a very logical argument, very powerful argument. What right did the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe have to send out thousands of Jews, many of them to their death, But this really, this really gets to, what's the definition of a Jew? What is the definition of a Jew? Before we talk about who is a Jew, let us first define, what is the definition of a Jew? The Alter Rebbe is now defining a definition of a Jew. What makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish soul, we have Jewish wisdom. What is Jewish wisdom? And the answer is, it depends how you look at Judaism. Do you look at Judaism as we are workers, we are the employees. Hashem is the master, a grand employer. We work for the big boss. And it's wise for a person to know where your bread is buttered from. You want Hashem to give you success? Okay, make sure to do what Hashem wants of you. You put on tefillin, you light the candles, you act in a kosher way. So this is the smart thing to do. Hey, listen, I'm not going to mess with the big boss. Hashem is more powerful than me. Everything I have comes from Him. He gives me life, He gives me health, He gives me success. If I want, I want God to do what I want, I better give God what He wants. So God is the employer and I'm the employee. Now if you look at it from that point of view, what if the employer hires you? He hires you to come to work every day. At the same time, the same employer hires a guard to stand at the door with an Uzi. He says, anyone who crosses, crosses this line is going to be shot. What do you do? What do you do? Not you go home. At the end of the week, you, collect, you come to collect your paycheck. You listen, I did my part. I was ready to come to work. You didn't let me come. The guy was standing there with an Uzi. It's not my fault. I was ready to do my part. And you know, he's right. You can go, go home, collect this paper. That's if you look at yourself as an employer, employee. But what the Baal Shem Tev taught us, what Hasidus reminded us, that the Jew is not an employee. This is not a, an employer-employee relationship. It's a marriage. It's Kiddushin. It's holy. A Jew is married to God. Now, when you're married, and someone comes and points a gun to your head and says, I want you to be unfaithful. I want you to be unfaithful. Just once. One day. Right? They made a whole film about that. It's one day. It's not an option. It's not an option. It's not a question of a day, or a minute, or a second. It's just not an option. It's a marriage. It's not a question, do I have to, don't I have to, am I going to consult my lawyer, consult my rabbi? There's nothing to consult, there's nothing to discuss. 
It's simply not an option. When you have that connection, that level of connection, that soul connection, it's an end in itself. To be unfaithful, I'll never be the same. I can. It's inviolable. And that's the answer. To the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Yiddishkeit was not a job. It was not about a sheer in the world to come and not a sheer in the world to come. It was not about how many pages of Talmud, how brilliant I am. It's a marriage. It's an end in itself. It's holy, it's sacred. And it's simply not an option. I can't be disconnected from God, even for a moment. And no matter, even at the threat, I will be shot. They're ready to be shot. Just to teach children alibis. Not to give my child a Jewish education, that's not an option. To work on Shabbos is not an option. So again, this is when Yiddishkeit is about holiness, not about ego. But when Yiddishkeit is religion, it's about ego. I'm an employee. What can God do for me? What am I gaining out of this? I'm gaining a lot. I'm sacrificing temporary pleasure, but I'm gaining back eternal pleasure. Could you compare momentary pleasure to eternal pleasure? So anyone who has the strength of mind who can live his life that way, it takes, it takes a tremendous presence of mind to make that calculation. For most people, eternal pleasure, it's about instant pleasure. The instant pleasure is right before me. The eternal pleasure is a little too abstract for, my, for me. But if you have enough presence of mind, you make a calculation. Am I, am I, am I going to give up momentary pleasure for eternal pleasure? I would rather sacrifice momentary pleasure. I'll deprive myself in this world from all the pleasures of this world and I'll live a religious life and I'll do exactly as God wants me to do and I'll live a very limited, constricted life but I know the rewards and the pleasure, rewards will be infinite. It's like a little investment and the returns are so much greater. But that's a calculation. That's not holy. That's not Judaism. That's ego. That's klipa. That's what Judaism calls evil in Hebrew there's no translation for it evil means we think of evil we think of an evil person here we're talking about a highly religious person scholar, a mystic but in the ultimate sense of the word of good and evil this is, this is, this is dead this is klipa, this is shell, this is ego it's about I it's not about Hashem, it's not Judaism Judaism is when you forget about yourself it's a marriage, it's a relationship I'm not thinking about myself thinking about Hashem I want to be close to Hashem I want to be intimate with Hashem I want to be together with Hashem that's the end in itself who cares about the world to come right now I'm studying Torah being intimate with Hashem that's what it's all about right now I'm doing a mitzvah and I have a link a connection with Hashem that's what it's all about I'm not thinking about myself I'm not asking anything in return just being together that gives you a tremendous sense of worth of preciousness how precious you are so ironic when your ego is that's when you truly become precious that's when you realize how precious you are that's when you realize how connect, how relevant you are how worthwhile the slightest movement is so meaningful to Hashem the slightest positive thought that we have means so much to Hashem the slightest overcoming of a difficulty of overcoming of an obstacle of pushing ourselves going that extra mile going that extra inch 
just doing a, a baby step forward. How infinitely precious it is to Hashem. How worthwhile we are. Every action, every movement of ours speaks volumes and has such infinite implications and can transform the world and shake the world to its core. It's so ironic, it's only, but it's only when there's no ego. It's only then that you realize the idea of the chosen people, that you're chosen, you feel chosen, you feel you're married. There's a marriage here. It's real. There's a real relationship, a real connection. Precisely when there's no ego. It's not about ego. It's about me. I'm better, smarter, sharper, funnier. That's not, that's not, it's not about me. It's about there's a marriage. There's a relationship. And how precious life is. How precious every moment of life. How precious the slightest thing. You take a cup of water, you make a blessing. How precious it is. Every moment in life is an opportunity to connect with Hashem. Then life becomes sacred. Every day of your life becomes sacred. Every moment of your life, when you're sleeping, when you're eating, when you're going about your career, your business, every moment of your life, your whole being becomes permeated with holiness and godliness like marriage itself, which affects and touches every fiber of your being and every bone in your body. It's the only area in your life which engages and touches and affects every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, every aspect of you. There's no part of you that's left out. It's holy, it's total, it's, it's every part of you, emotionally, psychologically, practically, spiritually. This is holiness, this is Judaism, this is what it's all about. This is then your days become holy, your life becomes holy, your home becomes holy, your business becomes holy, everything you do, your food becomes holy, the table you eat on becomes an altar. Everything you do, everything you touch, turns into holiness. Into something sacred, special, godly. You fill your mind. You don't empty your mind. Life is not about emptying your mind. It's not about playing dead nine hours a day. It's not about escaping and having some, some mountaintop and tuning in and tuning out and disappearing from life. It's about living joyously, passionately, but living your life, filling your life with holiness and sanctity. This is unique. This is uniquely Jewish. It's joyful. It's active. It's alive. It's sacred. Just as the heathen nations are called dead, so too are the wicked and the sinners of Israel, but only before they are put to the test of sanctifying God's name. On a conscious level, we're disconnected, divorced from holiness. But that's only true up until a point. Up until the Jew reaches his threshold. Every Jew has a threshold. When you reach that threshold, that chachma, that wisdom, that innate, inherent, Wisdom that each and every Jew inherits from his Jewish mother inherits all the way back from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That Jewish soul springs up, becomes activated, and bursts out into the surface, bursts out into the open. Continue. For facing such a test, the Chachma within them is aroused until it fills the entire soul with its spirit of self-nullification before God. At this point, they are alive once again. However, as long as they do not face this test, the level of Chachma is dormant within them, as the Alter Rebbe continues. For the faculty of Chachma in the Divine Soul, with the spark of godliness from the light of the Blessed Ain Sof that is clothed in it, are in a state of exile in their body. Within the animal soul of the realm of Kalipa in the left part of the heart, which reigns over them and dominates their body. This exile of the faculty of Chachma 
while the animal soul dominates the body, echoes the esoteric doctrine of the exile of the Shekhinah, since the Ein Sof abides in Chochmah, as mentioned earlier. For this reason, this love found in the Divine Soul, whose wish and desire is to unite with God, the fountainhead of all life, is called hidden love, an apparent contradiction in terms. Love denotes a manifest emotion and is not at all hidden. It is called hidden only when it is obstructed by an alien entity, and not because of any inherent quality of concealment, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to say. For it is hidden and veiled, in the case of the transgressors of Israel, in the sackcloth of the Klippa. Even we don't have the freedom of choice to destroy that place within us. But it's dormant. We can't access it. It's not a, it's not a force in our life. It's not active. It's not dynamic. It's not vibrant. Until the moment of truth. We all have a moment of truth. We just celebrated 40 years since the Six-Day War. When the soldier grew up in the Kibbutznik, the left-wing soldier, stood at the Kaisel and didn't even, know how to, didn't even know a Jewish prayer. He turns to his religious friend who fought side by side with him. He says, tell me a Jewish prayer. I don't know any Jewish prayer. He says, Shema Yisrael. He says, I don't know it. I never heard it. Because he grew up in a left-wing kibbutz where they intentionally ate bread on Pesach and ate chazer on Yom Kippur. But when they stood at the kaisel, they were crying like a baby, wanting to pray. He says, please, say with me the Shema Yisrael. That's the moment of truth. That's when the truth comes out. All the layers, the superficial layers that cover up, the shell that cover up and who, on our inside, who we really, the self-hating Jew. The self-hating Jew. But in the moment of truth, when you shake a Jew up, in the moment of truth, when you shake the Jew just like we do on Sukkot, you take the four species and you shake it. When you shake the Jew, you discover that even the Arava, even the willow, the Jew has no taste and no, no aroma. On the surface, you don't see any qualities. But when you shake the Jew, you discover the mitzvah, you discover the holy spark, you discover the pintaliyid, you discover the wisdom, you discover that innate, inherent beauty that's been lying dormant like a, and comes roaring like a lion, comes out and it's power, it's all its intensity and power and it's been there all along it's just been buried sometimes we bury it and we forget about it and we distract ourselves and we live in a 24-7 distraction it's constant distraction so we never even give ourselves a chance to listen, to hear that part within us but it's there but in the moment the truth it comes roaring out in its full glory and every Jew has it equal the self-hating Jew has it equal. It's like this. another beautiful story. We'll conclude the story of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. Right before he came to America, 1939, he was in Warsaw when the Nazis invaded Poland on the, on the pretense. And he lived through the Warsaw bombardment. The previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was a world-class, gifted writer. He describes the scenes. He says, this is the first war in human history that your living room was the front line. Even in World War I, there was a, a demarcation. The war was out of the cities. Here, they bombed the cities. That was the front line. Apartment buildings collapsed, people dying, falling out. It was just a heresy. He says, in one day, the bombing was particularly very heavy. And everyone gathered at the local shelter. 
And he had a collection of all types of Jews, every stripe imaginable. Ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jews who woke up at midnight, who went to shul three times a day and who studied Talmud. And you had Kabbalists, and you had Hasidim, then you had simple Jews, then you had modern Jews, then you had self-hating Jews, and you had Zionistic Jews and communist Jews, and every type of Jew. And everyone was doing their thing. The Hasidim were reading Tillim. Other Jews were reading Karl Marx. Everyone was doing their thing. He says, and suddenly, a bomb dropped right at the foot of the shelter. And a sheet of flame just burst out, emerged. And for a moment, they thought that they were facing death. The previous Rebbe says, every single Jew that was in that shelter yelled out on the top of their lungs, with every fiber of their being and every bone in their body, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Malikein Hashem the previous Rebbe says, do you think there was a difference of the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jew with the payers down to the floor, with the beer down to the floor, who never read a paper in his life, yelled out the Shema Yisrael, went to Yeshiva 50 years, and yelled out the Shema Yisrael, and the self-hating Jew, who is totally alienated from anything Jewish, who even, even doesn't show up in Shul and Yom Kippur, how he yelled out the Shema Yisrael. He says, in that moment of truth, there was absolutely no difference. They all yelled out with such intensity, with such warmth, with such feeling. He says, and that prepared me for moving to America. America was the treif in the Medina. Even the streets were treif. Many Jews threw the tefillin overboard on the Hudson River on the way to America. And the Atlantic. And America was different. You couldn't be Jewish in America. He says, but this taught me and I saw a live demonstration. Hashem showed me a live demonstration. That in the moment of truth, if you shake the Jew up, you realize all the nonsense just falls by the wayside. Twenty years, a person wrote books. The self-hating Jew. How alienated he is from anything Jewish. How hostile he is to anything Jewish. More Russian than the Russian. More communist than the communist. More German than the German. The moment of truth. It all boils down to Shema Yisrael. Shema Lekeinu. Shema. And that moment for our generation was the Six-Day War. 40 years ago. It sparked the renaissance of Jewish life. When the Jew was shaken to the core. When everyone expected another Holocaust, God forbid. When they actually sanctified a graveyard in Tel Aviv to hold 50,000 casualties. And when the Jew was shaken to the core, when the world once again abandoned the Jew. As usual, Israel was left on its, its own devices. And Israel was isolated and alone. You will be a nation apart. You always were and you always will be. When all the delusions and all the politics, all the divisions, artificial divisions in one Jew and the next just melted away. When the Jew was shaken to the core, you discover that Kibbutznik crying at the Kaisa like a baby with the same fervor and passion as the rabbi, mystic, and scholar, the chassid. This is what a Jew is all about. Every Jew has it. It's only the test, the moment of truth, that activates it, that ignites it, that allows it to emerge and surface and become an active, vibrant part in your life. That created the Renaissance, the Baltruva movement. That really sparked the whole Baltruva movement throughout the world. Hundreds of thousands of young Jews, university-educated, have rediscovered their Judaism with a vengeance, with a passion. 
Hashem shook us, but in, 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 a, in a wholesome way, in, in a miraculous way. It was such a stunning miracle that everyone, it was like biblical, that everyone was just moved and touched and just in a, in a beautiful way. And we hope and pray to Hashem in the merit of Gimel Thomas, in the merit of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, in the merit of the Rebbe, that Hashem should shake us, but not shake us in, with tragedies, not through Holocaust, God forbid, not through tragedies. But we can just as well easily be shaken through something positive. Hashem could do something that's so stunning, that's so miraculous. Hashem could perform some, such a stunning miracle that will shake us positively and evoke and ignite the holy spark, that pilot that exists within each and every one of us deep down within us. That it should emerge. It shouldn't be so deep down. It should be on, this, on the surface. We should feel the power and the strength of our Jewishness. We should cherish our Jewishness. We should celebrate our Jewishness. We should realize that we have something that's so precious. That being the chosen people is a blessing, is a gift, is, a, is, a, is a, something that's so precious. Something that's, that we should cherish and live up to that. And express by living a godly life, a holy life, a wholesome life, a sacred life, a life that's meaningful, a life that's moral, that's ethical and spiritual. And be a true light unto the nation. Be a true inspiration to all the nations of the world by our living example, by living a holy life, overcoming our natural impulses, and living a life of Torah and mitzvot, a life that's connected, that's intimate with Hashem, a life that we celebrate the marriage and relationship with the Jew with Hashem, this will usher in manifestation, and that marriage will become manifest, when Hashem will consummate the marriage of the Jew, and the entire world will celebrate with us and for us, and with us, and they'll also become part of it by, by adopting the seven Noahide laws, by living righteous, becoming righteous Gentiles. And then this entire world will truly become, will usher in the Messianic age, and this entire world will truly become a moral, ethical, and spiritual, and godly place, which was the dream of each and every Jew. And this is what the previous Lubavitch Rebbe and the Rebbe sacrificed their lives for, to really bring God into this world, to really bring godliness into this world, to make this world a place that Hashem says, I feel at home. And Hashem can't wait to come back into this world and to become manifest once again in this world like He was at the beginning of creation when this world was truly a Garden of Eden. Even today the world innately, inherently, is truly a Garden of Eden. We just have to reveal it and expose it. And uh, all the sacrifice and the tears and the hope and the faith and the trust and the joy and the love and the goodness and the kindness of, of all the previous generations, 3,800 years of Jewish persistence and sacrifice, should all bear fruit, should all come to fruition, and all those seeds that were planted should grow, turn out into this garden when this world will be transformed. The Yiddishkeit today, thank God to the Rebbe and the Shluchim, the Yiddishkeit today is flourishing in every corner of the world, that this world should become an overtly, a truly a garden of Eden, a delightful place, a wholesome place, a holy place, a, a special place where every human being feels that their life has worth, inherent worth. And they wouldn't want to throw away or act in a way that's foolish, act in a way that's detrimental to that preciousness, that, to, that, to that godliness. And when we'll all act in a godly way, so Hashem should help that the next class, Mitzvah Hashem, will be given by the Alter Rebbe himself for a change. <laughs>